1: Two of the most important beverages in human history are wine and cider. Of these, wine and cider both come from plants that originated near modern-day eastern Turkey and Georgia. I think it's kind of fascinating that Vitis vinifera grapevines most likely came from this area, and so did apples. Cider is an important beverage in America, too. President John Adams drank about a liter each morning with breakfast before he made all his presidential decisions, and a cider campaign also helped to sway the 1840 presidential election. But this time of year, people are drinking a different kind of cider. Spiced cider served warm and usually spiked. This hot, spiced cider is known as wassail. Wassail has many manifestations, and the roots of wassail date back at least a thousand years. Wassail dates back to Saxon times, when Princess Rowena raised a glass to the health of the British king and exclaimed, Wassail, or "be of Health. This was in 450 A.D., and it helped solidify the toasting custom. But Rowena's Toast has a much deeper significance in southern England. Blessing the Cider Tree Orchards was an important annual ritual that usually took place in mid-January. People would gather in the orchards, led by a ceremonial king and queen, and they'd go from orchard to orchard and offer wassail to the trees. This helped ensure the apple tree health for the next harvest, and it also helped to scare away evil spirits. Either the queen or a young boy would be lifted into the trees, and a piece of toast soaked in hot, mulled cider would be placed on the boughs as an offering to the trees. Cider was often poured onto the roots as well. In some regions, people would gather in a circle around the oldest apple tree and hang cider-soaked pieces of bread from the boughs and then sing wassail songs to the tree's health. But in the 1600s, things turned ugly, and revelers got rowdy. They'd go from door to door singing songs and sharing from a large container of wassail. But if you didn't reciprocate in kind with a treat or with some food, the rowdy Wassel crowd may have burst into your home and raided your pantry. Angry Puritans banned the Wassel celebrations in the 1650s. 200 years later in the 1860s, Henry David Thoreau would walk through the forests of New England and get buzzed off late harvest apples that had begun to ferment on the tree. I noticed that most restaurants today use regular apple cider without alcohol, and then they spice this and spike it with hard liquor. It's interesting to note that when you drink wassail, you are historically toasting the health of the apple trees for their next harvest.
0: It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S.com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Tali Bay on the show today. Hello, how are you? <laughs> Hi. Nice to see you.
2: Nice to see you.
0: So when you were here last time you were the wine writer, national eater person. Yeah. And what are you now? I don't, people can I can barely keep up with I'm all the not, stuff that's going on. I haven't on.
2: quite figured it out yet. I think it's uh I think um I'm in the process of figuring that out. Uh next week is the launch of Punch. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, it's about boxing. It's about boxing, yeah. It, you know, some people thought it was kind of a weird transition, wine, to boxing, but hey, really, there's, such a, <laughs> there's, there's some really interesting parallels. Um, it is a drinks culture magazine that is launching in collaboration with 10 Speed Press. Much in the same way that Lucky Peach was a collaboration with McSweeney's, no longer. Um, but a similar sort of setup. And um, it's been about nine months, so we're about to give birth to this baby.
0: And you're the editor-in-chief. Yes. And who else is on your team?
2: Uh, Leslie Paraso is the deputy editor, and she's terrific. She comes from the spirits and cocktail side. She was did a lot of stuff for GQ, for Esquire. She was at Martha Stewart as an editor for a very short period. She's young, and she is super, super talented.
0: And so. it does carry a lot of spirits coverage.
2: Yeah, a lot of spirits coverage. Yeah, and actually, we're launching with with far more spirits and cocktail coverage than wine coverage, which I think for some people will be, who know me, um, obviously coming from the wine side, will you know be a little bit sort of maybe confused about that, or at least surprised. And I think a lot of um, the reason for that is that, you know, I found a lot of amazing stories around spirits and cocktails. It's super exciting right now. And I think I, you know, sort of subconsciously was kind of taking a break a little bit from wine and was really energized by sort of the momentum behind both of those categories right now.
0: Are there certain topics in that Conversation that really stand out for you. I mean, what's really floating your boat? There's an introductory piece on tequila, but Mm -hmm. what else is going on that you're like, wow, spirits?
2: Well, I think I think in a sense, I think it's you know people are trying to explore you know, how the word terroir applies to spirits and how far we can take the the wine definition of terroir and apply it to spirits. And I think, uh, you know, you've got some really interesting things happening in rum. I think rum agricole is going to be something that I hope in the future um, we see more of and we know more about. But I think that, you know, at least for me, um, you know, going into this, I felt like a lot of this, in, this new information and a lot of these new producers were very new for me. So I think it was just a matter of being super excited, you know, and learning something new and really feeling like I was stumbling upon something that was, was, was moving forward in a really interesting way.
0: I think the excitement really comes through in the text that I've seen so far. And I felt like it really did emphasize that cultural side. Yeah. Uh, how do you see it uh, in the context of other publications that are out there? Do you see it as more as like Vice? Do you see it more as Martha Stewart? Do you see it more as Vanity Fair? What is it?
2: I actually haven't figured it out. I have got to come up with a good mashup because people ask me this question all the time. And I think there's there's certainly um, a little bit of a Vice element. Um, but you know, what one thing we wanted to do is we really wanted to tell meaningful stories, but we didn't want to take ourselves too seriously. And for me, and I, I look back at some of the work that I've done with wine, and I never really... There wasn't a lot of stuff where I really wrote about wine necessarily. I wrote about all of the things surrounding wine that I was interested in and the culture of wine drinking and how it's consumed and what it means to people. And I think that Punch is very much comes at drinks in general from that angle. You know, why do these things matter? Where do we drink them? You know, how do these things fit into people's lives in different ways? And and I think you see that with a lot of the content on, on Punch. And you'll see some, you know – Pretty straight journalistic stories. I mean, tequila sort of touches on that. It's certainly newsworthy, um, and we want to break news. But I think at the end of the day, we want to tell the stories, uh, tell the story of why these things are meaningful and why they have cultural value.
0: It looks like a lot of times when I read through it, I see a thread of uh, tension. There, there's mm-hmm. a tension between two sides in this story, whatever that story might be. Whether it might be bootleggers and legalizers, whether mm-hmm. it might be big corporate tequila and art, small artisanal tequila. Mm-hmm. Whether it might just be the tension of a reverence and mm. like making a guy's face out of Legos who's a famous bartender. Mm-hmm. It seems like often the divide is I can see that this is gonna rub some the wrong way. And so let's do that. Yeah. Am I reading it wrong?
2: No, I, I think um well there is sort of a countercultural bent to a lot of what's happening right now, and I think that's driving some of the most interesting interesting things in in spirits, in cocktails in wine. And so I think that that theme is going to repeat itself over and over on the website. And it's, I I think that you see that duality, you see these sort of like, like you're telling me not to do this. Fuck you. I'm going to do it. You know, kind of thing. That attitude is, Oh, when
0: I told you not to drink my tea,
2: (laughs) I'm drinking your tea.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you see it as a young old thing or,
2: uh, you know, and I'm al- I'm always sensitive to being – because now there's this, like, sort of online battle about, like, you know, the millennials versus the baby boomers and all of this crap. But I think, I think there is – we can't ignore the fact that there is a certain, you know, generational divide and that some of these new things are certainly attached to a certain – the newer generation. But that's not to say that these things weren't happening, you know, with the generation before us. I think that right now that you see – I mean, I, I mean, I'm I'm of that generation. So I think that no matter what, I'm going to feel like, you know, I'm looking at it from my perspective. So, yeah, I do think that a lot of what's happening, you know, and a lot of that attitude is certainly a generational thing.
0: Are there deeper historical threads that are run through what's happening now in Wine and Spirits for the younger generation with, say, transcendentalism or romanticism or, you know, the idea of finding oneself through art? Mm-hmm. Are Are those things somewhat in the background on this? Are they in the foreground? Are they not relevant? I mean, how did it turn out that we seem to be in the 1968 of of Wine and Spirits?
2: Yeah. yeah, I think that's. I think that 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 our choices that we're making about what we drink are more tied to our identity. You know, perhaps again, I I'm not a baby boomer, so I don't know how they felt, but um, but I think that the choices of what we are drinking are us saying this is this is who I am or this is who I want to be, you know. And I and I think that 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 it's totally tied to identity. And there is this sort of what I sort of think of it as, and I, I see this parallel in wine a lot. It's sort of like the indie rock movement in the 1980s. You know, and these bands that were coming up, like music was totally corporate at that point, and you couldn't break in if you were a small band that wanted to scream into a microphone and you know have a room full of sweaty you know teenagers. And um, you know, bands like Mission of Burma and and these in the Minutemen, and these guys came up, and you know they they changed music. It was this indie movement during the Reagan years, it, it was an unlikely time for that to happen. And I think that's happening not just in wine, it's happening in drinks in general, it's happening in a lot of things, you know? So again, I think it has a larger, it's about what's happening large in a larger cultural sense, but I think that attitude is is totally there. And I think that what they were saying wasn't just, you know, this is the kind of music we, li- we like. It's like, this is our lifestyle. This is a lifestyle. It's not just, you know, we like this kind of music and we don't like the kind of music that's coming out through major record labels. It was a whole DIY sort of this is how we want to live thing. And I think that is, you see a lot of that in wine specifically because, you know, these winemakers... In California, for example, you know, a lot of them don't have the money to be able to have a chateau in Napa, you know, and they went out and they said, okay, well, we're going to figure out a way to do this. And, you know, what they're doing, it is a lifestyle. You look at guys like Abe, for example, like there is a very particular sort of identity associated with that. So I think that I think yes, in all of those to the answer, to your question is yes, I think that it's tied to what maybe we are living in this sort of 1960s again.
0: So you followed music pretty closely before you started writing more seriously about wine. And in fact, some of your earliest blog posts were on uh, music and wine together mm-hmm. and looking at wine as if it were a song. Did that help you to look through that lens when you were developing a story ideas for Punch? Because one of the stories I read was kind of a day in the life of an LCD sound system ex-member. Mm-hmm. And she says, hey, same people who like wine are the same people who like music.
2: Yeah, I think I think in a certain way. I mean, I, I I've I guess I've you know as I you know was trying to make a career out of wine writing, I couldn't necessarily write about the connection of of, of music and wine because no one was going to pay me. But I think that now there is a freedom to kind of look at all of these different cultural expressions and see how they're related. And I think, you know, Nancy Wang makes a really interesting point that, that, you know, being into wine is almost like sort of collecting records. And I think the greater point is that there are these like two super geeky subcultures. But for whatever reason, wine wasn't seen, hasn't been seen that way. It seemed as this sort of pretentious kind of, I can't be a part of this sort of thing. When people look at music, I don't think they feel the same way. But I do think that's changing. And I think you see that in, in many different ways playing out.
0: Because a lot of times I'm like, Beethoven's such a fucking snob. Yeah, um, well. I can't he relate to the people? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I know what you mean. Yeah. But, but so what's, what's Punch going to look like? How big is it going to be? How's it going to be transmitted? What's the story?
2: So it's a website and um, it's primarily digital. I mean, we've always thought about print being part of our plan. And, and I, I certainly hope it is, you know, down the road. But right now we're focused on digital because, you know, I, I think that, When we looked around and we were sort of like, can we do this? Can we have a website that's about drinks culture that's focused on narrative journalism? Like, is there a place on the web for this? Um, And we saw a lot of what was happening in food, which was so exciting, you know. And um, there was this varied, super diverse conversation happening from many different angles in food. And you look at drinks and the same thing isn't happening but like this the, the there's plenty of exciting things and then there's this like totally energetic young generation that's driving it forward so we figured okay let's let's try and do this and and we felt like the the web was the place to do it at least to start like selfishly i'd love to have like a really beautiful you know biannual or quarterly journal that is punch as well but anyway to answer your question it's going to be um it's really photography forward and you know that's another thing where i felt like if we were going to tell these stories, we need to have the visual element because it's so important to really having having these stories have an impact. Um, and you're not seeing a lot of that on the web, you know, when you're w- with drinks coverage. You know, it's like one small image and, you know, whatever. So we wanted to invest in that. So it's a big image forward website, and it separated wines, wine cocktails, spirits. We have a huge recipe database, which we are testing every single recipe and vetting ourselves with the help of bartenders as well. But we're going back through the classics and saying, okay, well, this is, in our opinion, the best way to make a Manhattan. So there, is an, there we're editorializing the recipe database, and it's totally searchable and all of that. And then we have a huge A to Z glossary that we've also put together, which um, is essentially a reference, and it'll internally link throughout the site. So you know, for example, you're reading and you don't know what chartreuse is, it's all there. Um, which has a, been a major, major undertaking as well. So there's a lot, a lot of
0: moving parts. I was really impressed by what you say about photography, especially reading a piece like the tequila piece, mm-hmm. which was really more about pictures than text. I mean, yeah. there was some introductory paragraphs to kind of set the tone and then much of the forward motion of the piece was transmitted visually.
2: Yeah, it sets the tone. I think that's another thing, too. It's like, you can talk about what's happening there. But I think that piece would not have worked at all without those images, you know, so and I think I, I, I'm starting to, to realize that more and more, you know, as I'm, as I'm, you know, being pitched pieces, there are certain things that it's a, it's a great story, but I don't think I can do without photography. And if we can't do it, we won't do the story kind of thing. And I'm, you know, I'm starting to, to feel that way more and more.
0: I often feel when I read uh, blogs, mm-hmm. which I may I may be one of the last people to do, but I often feel that I'm I'm finding myself not reading the text and just looking at the pictures and kind of skimming the text mm-hmm. because you know time is precious and I got TV to watch, you know, mm-hmm. Breaking Bad episodes or whatever.
2: No, we have priorities. We all have priorities.
0: <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> does it seem like you can catch a broader audience through? Visual means.
2: I hope so. I think that that's another part of of what we were trying to do with Punch is like have a varied group of contributors. So it wasn't just wine writers and drinks writers, um, because we wanted to provide a lot of different access points. So that if you landed on that website and you were kind of casually interested, like you went to bars, you drink, you know, whatever, you get your drink on after midnight, and you're wondering maybe how to you know mix a decent Manhattan, that perhaps the content on the site will also be relevant to you. So I think photography is just another way to provide different access points for people because if you have, you stumble upon that tequila story, you might not have ever thought about sort of this like cultural tension between corporate tequila and these very, a very small handful of people who are doing the right thing, you know, but, now you do, you know, because there are these beautiful photos. So yeah, I think that's a really big part of it. But I just I wanted it to feel inclusive so that if you landed on punch, you could be somebody who has a ton of knowledge, or you're somebody who is just like casually curious. And and I don't know, you ended up on the site for whatever reason, and you can find something that is relevant, you know, and that's a hard thing to do without getting really mixed up. So I hope I hope hope we we figure it out. (laughs)
0: Does that help sidestep the terminology issue? Like if someone comes onto the site and they don't know what metiage is or botrytis is, and you show them some, some pictures, Mm -hmm. does that communicate a message that they don't have to do the background reading to know?
2: Yeah. I think it's a double-edged sword because I think, you know, I've done a lot of thinking about sort of what's happening on the internet and, and um, the fact that people don't want to read anymore. And, you know, you don't want to necessarily contribute to that. But we've got plenty of we're, we're always going to have a lot of words. Um, but yeah, I think that's part of what's happening. We're doing a ton of video as well. And and that's another thing people really connect that sort of stuff. So yeah, I, I mean, I hope that the, the future isn't that people just stop reading and they just look at pictures, because I think that that will be the end of the human race. But like, you know, I, I think that we need to provide these, these, we, we should use them to our advantage to be able to tell great stories. If you're doing the right thing with it, then,
0: you know. So online, what's that look like for you back of the house? What are the challenges that have come up over the last nine months?
2: Oh, there are are many. Um, Well, it's just the two of us, basically editorial. So, and we're putting out a lot of content per month. So I think that the big challenge is just like being able to manage all of that, you know, with two people and stay organized. And of course, like a big part of our time has been working with the developers and with design, and and um, of course, Ten Speed is really involved in all of that as well, and just coming up with the identity of what this thing is. And I think I didn't realize sort of what it was until it took me like six months working on this to be like, oh, this is what Punch is. I think I was sort of like had my head down. I was making lists of wish contributors and things I'd want to cover, and then there was this moment where I was like, oh, I. I know what you are. Like it's, it became a, it became its own entity with its own momentum and you're kind of just like feeding it instead of, you know, you're just, I'm kind of getting out of the way because it's become this thing in a sense, you know, and I understand what it is. Um, So I think the hardest part was, was, you know, getting a sense of, of its identity. That was the biggest challenge.
0: What's a projected audience of something like Punch? I mean, how many people? I I think we often hear, "Hey, food publications get all of these yeah. people. Spirit publications get well funded because there's lots of ads. Who knows what happens with wine publications? Really, yeah, um, it's going all online. I mean, who's going to be passing through?
2: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. I think, I think it's certainly an urban audience, you know, and, and urban now, you know, could it means Indianapolis, it means, you know, Portland, it means New York, of course. So I think it's certainly more of an urban audience. And I think it's probably younger, I think it's probably 25 to to 45. And, and that's certainly the audience that we've uh, organized our content to reach. And that's a big audience. I mean, that's 20 years. Um, But I think that I think you see a lot of crossover in people, what people in their mid 20s are interested in, an urban 25 year old, say, and somebody who's 35, I don't think there's necessarily like a huge difference that that income changes their preferences in a major way. I think going back to to kind of trying to make a make it a place that that feels inclusive, it goes back to you know I think it's about curiosity. I think maybe the 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 punch audience is just somebody who's who's into drinking and you know isn't just wanting to go to the bar and order a like a vodka tonic, you know, that that wants to know a little bit more, or you know is somebody who's like actively going out and buying a bottle of wine and you know, but isn't necessarily somebody who's like you know picking up the world atlas of wine and studying it every night before they go to bed, you know. But I, th- I hope that the content is also really interesting for somebody like that.
0: Is it important for you to have global stories? I mean, is it important for you to go to Mexico, to Istanbul, to Kentucky? You know, in a previous generation, I felt like there was certain locuses of where things were happening. Yeah. Napa, bordeaux these were the places where wine was, was yeah. being made and, and talked about in relation to. Yeah. Now, is it is it important now to find a story wherever it is and maybe even look for the story that you know no one had thought to look for because it's out there somewhere and it sounds exotic or I mean, what's the real reality
2: yeah i think um for sure and and we i i want to be careful you know for it not to be totally focused on on america you know we've got stories from istanbul we just did something in tokyo and i think there are interesting things happening everywhere so if you're not if you're not open to that then you know i think that you're not taking advantage of what's happening. So. For sure, and we've we've made an effort to find writers all over the world that we can work with. We have someone we're working with in Tokyo, someone we're working with in, in Rome, someone, a couple of people in London. So, you know, the content is going to be spread out and be pretty international. Although it will always have sort of an American bent, and a lot of the sort of we're working on something right now about drive through daiquiri culture in Louisiana. So you'll see a lot of like less obvious sort of places being covered on punch in America. So it's not just going to be like, here's what's happening in New York. Here's all the cool things. But, you know, I'm more interested in, in how some of the things we're seeing happening in New York are playing out el- elsewhere. And if, if it is different, you know?
0: What's it like to be an editor? I mean, you want people to write for you. What works? What doesn't work? How do you get people motivated? How do you get them to show up with work on time? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you communicate the vision that you want without stepping on their vision? Mm-hmm. What works? Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I think, you know, what's, what's been great for us is, is being able to say like, this is what, what punches and, and early on, you know, after we kind of felt like this is the identity of this thing. And I think people and you know, it it was hard because we were like, oh, we're this thing, we don't exist yet. Do you want to write for us? And, you know, and we were approaching people who are, you know, very well known. And, and, um, you know, it was touching for me that, That a lot of people, you know, ended up working for below their rate and and writing for a publication that doesn't exist, and we felt like, okay, we're you know we're doing the right thing, like we're on the right track. Um, But I think editorially, you know, I I always obviously coming as working as a writer and and um, for so long that you don't want to step on on somebody's creativity. You want to essentially enhance it, and I think. what we've always wanted to do is make sure that we're a place for many different voices. And what I say to a lot of people is, you know, look, if it's that if there's a a story that you've always wanted to write and you feel like there has there is no place for it, Punch is probably the place for it. And and I think because of that, we've really we've opened we've opened the doors to a lot of writers to Come up with ideas that are kind of outside of the box that so we've ended up with with more interesting stories as a result so that's been fun but for me i love i love the developmental side of editing and and helping somebody sort of structure the piece and and maybe touch on things they hadn't thought of i mean to me that is the most exciting part of what i do at line editing i could do it i i could do without that but but it's the it's it's helping somebody form an idea and make sure that they're or help them sort of make their idea clearer or better um, and that's that's the fun part of, of being an editor.
0: You also have your own project that you're developing uh, a book, mm-hmm. uh, ostensibly about Sherry. What's what's the story on that?
2: Yeah, timing is terrific on all that. But yeah, so I'm simultaneously working on a book that um, is essentially due at the same time this site is launching, which has been um, a little bit hairy. But So it's a book about Sherry, and um, it's sort of a hybrid cocktail and wine book. It has all of the things that you would expect from a single subject wine book, you know, it's uh, talking about the history of Sherry, but but uh, sort of the forgotten history and how Sherry can, what Sherry can teach us about sort of the history of drinking in America and how Sherry was a part of um, American culture early on. And we sort of forgot about that over the last 100 years. And there's a lot of narrative. So it's written, look, I, you know, I don't pretend to be a a sherry expert, of course, like this has been extensively researched. But I think part of it is written from the perspective of someone's excitement about discovering this thing that is so delicious and, and so misunderstood. And so that's sort of the the through line with with the book. And and for me, the cocktail chapter was was a tremendous thing to research and so exciting because sherry was such a major ingredient in, in 19th century cocktails and, and even earlier than that. So discovering some of these forgotten drinks and and researching something like the Sherry Cobbler, which is this like was like that cosmo of the 19th century. It was this incredible incredibly popular drink, you know, it, both in America and internationally. So there's like a lot of, for me, a lot of discovery in in researching the cocktail chapter. There's also food in the book as well. And, and it also looks at the region and what Andalusia is sort of like, you know, it's a very complex region. And there are a lot of really interesting sort of cultural expressions there. I mean, flamenco is also a part of the book because there are a lot of parallels between flamenco and sherry. And there's just a that region is like intense, you know. I don't know if you have ever read Lorca, but like that dude is like deep and there is some serious sort of like yin and yang type very deep cultural tumult in that in that area. So exploring some of that without getting too depressed um is certainly part of the book as well.
0: Do you find yourself at times communicating excitement about a region that maybe is a little depressed about itself? Have you had to go in and be like, hey guys, you should be really excited about this. This is cool. Or do they have that excitement already?
2: No, they, they, they don't. I mean, I think, you know, they're, they've dealt with sort of the decline of the industry over, over the last decades. And, and what's happening here and in, especially in New York you go to something like Sherry Fest and you see how many people are showing up to drink sherry which certainly wouldn't have happened just a few years ago and i think now you're starting to see the numbers change in export numbers to the united states from the sherry triangle and i think that they're starting to sort of feel it but there is again it's a complex region with there is a there is a lot that needs to be done for that region to really reestablish itself and have the kind of future i think it 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 wants or it should have you know that it's had before um so i think again to reach it's reach the heights that that region reached in in the 19th century there's a long road ahead you know and i think that people realize that
0: is the embrace of sharing this country also generationally based and if so why is the younger generation embracing it
2: i i certainly think think so and it's kind of unlikely because it's this thing that everyone was like oh it's for grandmas oh it's for crazy aunts and then you have this like young sort of and Francis Percival who's a who's who works for the World of Fine Wine in London, he he said it best. He said there is this sort of like Brooklyn living, Jura drinking kind of countercultural bent that's associated with Sherry's rise. And and I think that's a big part of it. And I think that's a lot of what has gotten people interested in it. And I think it's not just a wine thing. It's certainly a cocktail thing. And it was a cocktail thing really before it was a wine thing. And I think having that cocktail element has definitely helped its image as well, even though, I mean, it's still a tough sell when you tell a bodega that, you know, people are putting their or sherry in in a cocktail but without cocktails i don't think any i I think you totally you know we've talked about this before i don't think i think without cocktails sherry wouldn't have had the moment that it's having right now
0: in the introduction to the punch preview Mm -hmm. you spoke about the i guess again the tension of taking something that's supposed to be a distinct product and blending it together Mm. how is that playing out with sherry i mean why might someone do that and a bodega master hears that someone is taking his beloved thing that has spent you know, mm-hmm. any number of years being blended together for the perfect flavor. Are they happy? Are they unhappy? Do they feel like they're a part of a, a bigger drinking world, or do they feel like they've been snubbed?
2: I think that a lot of people still tell you that America is, even though we're now the the number one wine-consuming country in the world, that we're still a cocktail culture. And I think we are in a lot of ways. And I think that this, this sort of penchant for mixing things together and just making new things out of it, that spirit of invention is very American. And um, – And I think that I think that that's going to continue to happen, you know, and I think that what the cocktail has done, not just for Sherry, but for other things as well, has acted as sort of like it's like the marijuana before you can actually like get into the real stuff. It's a gateway. It allows you to like it allows you to uh, to to sort of encounter something in a form that you're familiar with. I mean, everyone's familiar with the cocktail. And then if it's something that you're interested in, you go and you explore it. You know, on its own. And I think that the one thing that, that a lot of the bodega owners might not understand is that a lot of these bartenders ended up falling in love with Sherry as a wine as well. And they become like very powerful ambassadors for Sherry as a wine. So I think that the, it speaks to the versatility of what of Sherry that you can have. You can have it in your house and, okay, you're drinking it, you drink a couple glasses and you're like, oh, today I feel like a cocktail. You can use some of that bottle in a cocktail. I think it's just, again, it speaks to the versatility of, of Sherry at the table, you know, and as an aperitif.
0: What does it bring as a cocktail ingredient? I mean, why might I use sherry and not something else?
2: Well, I think uh, I mean you, you explain this best. I think that it 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 sort of adds those base tones to a drink. It it sort of, you know, it adds a certain for me it adds sort of a, a Venice quality, it lowers the ABV, it can make a drink more compatible with food. And I think that's hot right now as well. I mean, people want lower alcohol drinks. So I think that, you know, sherry as an ingredient in aperitif cocktails, it's it's the perfect thing. There's a lot of complexity, and you can get it easily. But yeah, I think that you said it best when it really kind of adds that sort of that umami kind of undertone to a drink that's hard to get from other stuff.
0: So did you find that they were drinking a lot of sherry in cocktails in Jerez?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there it's like gin and tonic land or you're drinking Rabujitos, which is sherry and Sprite, essentially. And no, cocktails are not a thing in Spain, just in general. You know, it's it's a gin and tonic and that's about as far as it goes. And I, I don't know if it's ever going to be I mean, I, I can't see the cocktail, craft cocktail movement taking off in Spain. It just doesn't seem likely. But you know, they don't know.
0: have enough suspenders and mustachio dudes. I or? think
2: it's, yeah, I think there's not enough, there's not enough facial hair in Spain. I think that's <laughs> really what. <laughs>
0: if if we are measuring chest hair, no, no yeah, problem. Yeah, no problem. But but yeah, uh, the
2: body yeah. hair is fine. It's no problem there. But, but yeah, there's not enough facial hair.
0: So. Why then did you say, okay, I definitely want to put cocktails in a book? Was it things that you experienced in America? Were there people that mentioned it to you? I mean, what was the impetus for you to say, you know what, I'm going to write a wine book that's also a cocktail book?
2: Because I think I think, firstly that sherry is one of the rare things that has inspired evangelism in both the wine and cocktail world. There's not a lot of things like that. Amaro is another one of them. And I, I can't even really think about perhaps mezcal, but it's different. And sherry, I think, illustrates – culturally where these these two things are coming together where they have a common ground and i think we're seeing more and more where that common ground is it's sort of the 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 connection of beverage to place and tradition and so i wanted to i wanted to illustrate that point as well that like these worlds aren't so different that we are interested in a lot of the same things so i felt like sherry was the perfect thing i also felt like look i mean that's the way that sherry is used in a lot of ways and um is a big part if i'm going to tell the story of Of sherry in a modern sense, I could never leave that out, you know, because that's a huge chunk of what sherry is from a modern perspective. That's
0: how it's being consumed in this country.
2: Yeah. No doubt, in a big way. So, and it's been fun for me because you know I've spent a lot of time writing about wine, and now I get to research classic cocktails, which was like the best crash course in getting ready for punch as well. You know, it's like it, I went back and spent I've spent so many hours at Cocktail Kingdom looking through these old cocktail books, which is fascinating. And the and you can learn a lot about wine actually from these books as well because the, the wine sections are fascinating. But so it was like such a quick crash course in in like 19th century cocktailing for me.
0: So let's talk about Talia a little bit. I think, uh, you <laughs> oh, know, shit. you can, no, but I mean, seriously, I mean, a lot of people ask and wonder about you and talk about you you're somebody that's, you know, a known figure now. Why, you know, you're writing for Eater, National Voice, you're writing for The Wine Spectator, the kind of job that a whole generation of people would have really died to get. And then you gave it up to do Punch and this book. What's the benefit of giving it up for you?
2: Creative freedom, and I think that, uh, it's not opt- often that someone comes along and says, hey, you know, I've got this idea. Do you want to do it together? And and I think, you know, Aaron Wenner from 10 Speed Press, we we started this conversation, you know, nine, 10 months ago. And I think, you know, we get along really well. And I think we see eye to eye on so many different things. And we have a lot of the same taste. And I had such an ama- like a tremendous amount of respect for 10 Speed and what they've done and how they've been a leader in, in the food and drink space. So I knew that culturally, like, we would agree on so many fronts. And I knew that it was the right kind of partnership. And it seemed like it's a once-in-a-lifetime sort of thing. Especially in this industry, it's not easy. Um, and I spent, a, you know, a lot of time sort of struggling in finding and feeling like I wasn't necessarily finding exactly the right fit. And when this came along, I, I knew right away that it was the right thing to do. And I knew that no matter what the sacrifice was, that I had to take the chance, you know, because it was... I'd be silly not to.
0: And if you were... To look back in 20 years mm-hmm. and say, I'm really happy that that happened, what would that be?
2: I think there are a lot of moments that I've felt that way in my career where I am I think I'm, I mean, I, you know, people always ask like, oh, if you could take like one thing back, what would it be? Like, I really don't, I really wouldn't take any of it back. And I think that I've made a lot of mistakes and I've made them publicly, you know, and, and, and being at Eater, it's sort of, you get, you, you know, you know how it is. It creates sort of a thick skin, and I think I think every... So what do you
0: mean by that for those who may not know?
2: Oh, well, now it's changed, but the comment section on Eater was particularly brutal, and there was a lot of, like, really angry trolls. And I, like, ended up having what seemed like this, like, sort of troop of angry trolls that would, like, follow me around the web. And, you know, and, and it, that was hard to take when people are, like, essentially telling you you suck every day. Um but I'm glad that I had that experience because I think you have to learn to to take the chance even if you see that people are not, you know, necessarily responding the way that you want them to that you have to keep doing what you're doing. And I think it prepared me for for this project, you know, and being confident enough to say, look, this is the decision I'm making and if people don't like it, like, you know, I'm I'm going to stand behind it creatively because I think we're doing the right thing. And I don't know if I would have gotten to that point if I didn't have that experience with eater. And we it's weird that like being broken down in, in public and like having like fruit thrown at you essentially made made me more confident in what I'm doing, but I I would say that it did. And I don't know if I would look back. I think that I hope that in 20 years I look back at this moment, you know, and and I say, "Well, this was this was maybe the best decision I ever made," you know, and knock on wood. But I hope. I mean, when you take a big leap, you I mean, you always got to hope that you're going to look back and think it was the right thing.
0: So you've done writing and now editing in a few different venues. Mm -hmm. Did it give you a chance to explore different aspects of your voice or who you were? Or did it give you a chance to tell stories where a different part of you came through in Mm -hmm. that story?
2: I think, I mean, most of the writing I've been doing lately is, is on the book. And I actually haven't really written anything for Punch, which is sort of a shame. And I kind of miss, um, I miss going out and finding a story. But, you know, my energy, my writing energy has been focused on Cherry. And I think, yes, it's been an incredible experience. Because literally, I remember sort of like staring at this like, this blank page when I was supposed to write this book and I was like, how the fuck do you write a book? And I remember just like literally sitting there for probably a week. I don't even know, no, because I didn't even know how to start, you know. And and I and I thought to myself, I'm like, what have I gotten myself into? Like this is the one time where I'm got I'm in over my head. And working on a project that big and spending so much time researching it is something I never had the opportunity to do before. And I've loved – it's been an incredibly emotional experience because, you know, you have one day where you're like, this whole thing sucks. And it's been eight months, you know, even working on it. You're like, what am I going to do? And then you have days where you're like, wow, I, I think that, you know, you have a breakthrough or you're researching something and you, you follow a lead that actually goes somewhere. And um, it's incredibly gratifying. So I think the up and downs of working on a project like this and kind of talking yourself down and staying level and staying productive has been like a new experience and a really interesting, exciting experience for me.
0: Have you ever felt the sense while this was all happening that Sherry might be in kind of a trend moment and then by the time you got to the finish line, the band mm-hmm. wouldn't be there playing there anymore?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, sure. What's I think... that f- like? Yeah, you you hope that this this wine with you know three thousand years of history isn't just a a flash in the pan. I mean, Sherry has had a very it's had a rough history it's in its history is actually one of the most remarkable in the entire history of wine. But you hope that this is that moment where we can hold on to this because there's so, there's so much that's so good that's happening right now. And there's the right people are behind it. You've got this like incredibly influential bar community. You've got, you know, all of the right people in wine that are, that are kind of saying, look, like pay attention, pay attention to this thing, making sure that people are still discovering it. So I, I don't, I personally, like I don't think that it's going to fizzle out, but it's something that I think, no matter what, is always going to take people being pushing it. It's not going to ever. I don't really see it ever being this thing that just kind of blows up and has a mind of its own and and um, you know enchants the entire country. It's it's a wine who's it's incredibly austere it's it's a, it's very different i mean it's the opposite of fruit so i think it's always going to take people being excited about it and, and hand selling it if you're on the floor as a sommelier or saying hey check this drink out with sherry it's always going to need that so i just hope that the people that people don't give up on it you know and move on to something else cuz that happens you know for sure
0: communication has changed the word gets out quicker word gets mm-hmm. out farther about everything mm-hmm. how many people does it take to start a trend in wine. 4,000? Is that 40,000? Is that 40? Is mm-hmm. it four?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because I'm going to quote Jancis Robinson because she calls the, she, she once said, and it was in reference to Sherry, that there was this sort of international sommelier mafia that had made Sherry happen, you know, and it like no marketing campaign, no nothing could have done what happened, which is that word of deliciousness sort of spread super quickly. And it's I always like kale. Yeah, it was like kale. It's like kale salad, you know? Exactly. Sherry is like... sherry. there big... no... Shit, I have like a new subtitle for my book. It's just like kale. Because
0: there was no like marketing board behind that. Like, ha, 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 One day you will all drink bitter. But who
2: is behind kale is really a good question. <laughs> <laughs> who are these people? But They're I don't good. mean to interrupt. Yeah, I no. mean,
0: what, is, what are the group dynamics?
2: <sighs> That's a good question. I think that... um I haven't. I haven't actually thought super deep about how many people it really takes, and I think what it is is certainly the perfect storm in a sense. I think that what happened with Sherry is it was framed as having that countercultural bent, and there were all these other people. There were all these people that ended up getting involved at the right time. It just was the perfect storm. And I don't. But I. I don't. I haven't thought about sort of what happened with Sherry versus what happened with some other things, and have like sort of compared and contrasted to see how unique its rise is versus you know. I don't know something else, the Jura. There is a certain parallel for sure with the Jura and with, you know, There are There are similarities. But yeah, I don't know how many people it takes, you know.
0: How long are we going to need editors and chiefs for in our culture? It seems like every time I turn around, the thing that's successful is the thing that's interactive, where people are picking their own content mm-hmm. through picking who's going to provide the content for them. You know, I feel like a lot of what Twitter is is people developing their own verbal channels mm-hmm. by selecting who they're gonna you're, you're making a bet mm-hmm. that this type of person is gonna say something you're interested in and mm-hmm. you're subscribing to that person and you're mixing all those feeds together mm-hmm. facebook in a lot of ways is the same thing except there's a common thread usually or it used to be of i know these people mm-hmm. but it seems like so much of what is being created is not being created top down mm-hmm. it's being created the other way mm-hmm. like somebody has no crowdsourcing editor, right He writes something for his blog, she writes something for her blog, and then someone is like, that's cool, let's get that person to write for us, as opposed to, hey, I'm going to go out and assign this. I feel like there's been a lot of stories and messages and communication that has happened without someone deciding that that communication was important before it happened. Mm -hmm. How long are we going to need editors? Are we always going to need them? What's the future of being an editor? What does it look like in 10 years to be an editor? Mm -hmm.
2: Well, I hope so because I'm gonna need a job, but i I think um I don't know i I guess like the way that we all interact on the web these days is that we are going out and we're all our own editor in chief, right? So we're going around and we're choosing content, we're putting it all together, and we're creating our own magazine on on a day to day basis. But I think that this whole crowdsourcing model and um i don't I don't know how sustainable that is. I think with something with a topic, like if we just narrow that to just drinks. I think that, that that a lot of this stuff requires A certain amount of explaining, you know, it's it's a hard thing to sort of find out on your own, and there's a lot of misinformation. And I think that people are starting to realize that with that model, you know, that that people are getting incorrect information. So I don't know. I think the internet and I think journalism is in flux. Continues to be. I don't know how long it's going to last, but you know, you're seeing interestingly a lot of people going in the print direction, which you know, five years ago people would have been like, oh no, print, no, 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 no. And now it looks like you know, it seems like everyone's creating a new. Magazine every other day, so it's hard to tell what the heck is going to happen. But I think certainly we're always going to need those people to sort of make sure that we're getting the right information at a very base on a very basic level. And then you know, obviously beyond that, it's it's having a point of view. And I think that um, you know, when I make a choice on what I'm going to read, it's it's a, I look at the entire publication and I know which publications I connect with. And without an editor in chief, you have none of that. You just have information, and it makes our job as personal editor-in-chiefs when we go out on the web much harder when we don't have stuff that's curated in a, in a tight way. So I really hope that, it, you know, that, that editor-in-chiefs don't, you know, disappear. That would be terrible for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> are there types of stories that a big audience wants to hear now? Is there a David and Goliath story? Or is there, you know, man versus machine? Or are there... Artist kind of stories, or are there certain stories that maybe connect up traditions or mm-hmm. you know, put uh, the current moment into something that's deeper than the current moment so mm-hmm. that people feel like there's some bigger hole to mm-hmm. what they're doing at this moment, whether mm-hmm. it be dress up like a prohibition era bartender or not? <laughs> but I mean, are there certain kinds of stories that people really want to hear, and is that affecting? the rest of the content of that story? Is it sometimes more important to package the story than it is to do anything else with the story?
2: Well, I think that... I think certain themes will always continue to proliferate, and one of those is the underdog story. Everybody loves an underdog story, and I think that, I think that particularly in drinks, we like to hear about that. I think the whole old timey thing, right, like the the connection of of drinks to our history, the us rediscovering what it was like to drink in the nineteenth century, the eighteenth century, whatever. A lot of those exploring our heritage, those stories, I think, are always going to be important when we talk about drinks. Um, and I think I think that this sort of those, those stories about individuals who are sort of flipping the table, so to speak. And they're like rabble rousers, people who are disruptors. Like, I think that people want to hear about that right now, for sure. So I think those three things, I think connection to heritage, to history, um, underdog stories, Sherry is a great example of that. And, you know, people who are, who, people who are you know, um, upsetting the balance, you know, that we've established over the last 20, 30 years. Because I think a lot of us are realizing that, you know when you look at American wine, um, because it's in, it's the easiest way to understand what's happening, is that we decided that we didn't want we made mistakes, you know and and that maybe this isn't this wasn't the the path that we wanted to go down. And I think that story, like the rewriting is, I think, will be driving journalism about drinks for a long time because what is happening right now is things are being rewritten in a really big way all over the world. And for me on punch, like I see those things play out over and over and over. Like I'm seeing so many stories with that element. And I mean, I was just editing a story this morning about the guy named Terry Breton in, in Paris um, who has this new wine bar that only serves wine in Magnum and there's you're not allowed to actually use any money. You have to use like Chuck E. Cheese coins to pay for things. And it's just this like totally weird place. But I think that there are so many of those people that are wanting to change the way we drink, you know. And, and I think that uh, for me, those are a lot of the most exciting stories.
0: So it's a drinks journal, but it's also a cultural journal. Mm-hmm. How important is it that the culture of drinking was once illegal in our culture.
2: I think temperance lingers deep and long in this country still. And I think, um, you know, and you even, when you have to think about the fact that, that I'm, you know, we're, we're now putting a journal out that's like m- entirely about drinking alcohol, that there are th- still things that you have to, still considerations that you have to think about. And, and we haven't been thinking that much about them, but there are considerations yeah, it, it, even with it was funny like the other day with Tumblr, there was something they wanted to promote our, our our Tumblr, but because it's about alcohol, you know they they said oh we really can't we can't put that out there because you know there are people who use Tumblr that are under the age, so there's still like that sort of thing, but but yeah, I, and, and I think they will, that the that prohibition because now we're so focused on this period during before and after prohibition that that bec- is something that we're you know, constantly aware of now, you know, when we're talking about drinks is this period in America where drinks were illegal, but even the story about, um, in Istanbul, I mean, there's a similar thing happening in Istanbul, this, this sort of, you know, alcohol is this sort of evil thing. Um, that's just like one tiny notch below doing drugs essentially is, is still something that we need to talk about. And it's 2013, which is crazy. Um, but it's there in a lot of stories and in a lot of places for sure.
0: So if people, instead of just cracking open Jenny Lights, are thinking to themselves, I don't know, maybe I want a Sherry, maybe I want something from Azure, I'm going to subscribe to this publication, and they're doing that in their 20s -hmm. instead of doing that in their 30s, why is that the case?
2: I, it's I, and I've thought about this a lot because you know uh, we we were we just hired an intern and she's you know just out of college and knows already is interested in wine and and I'm interacting with I'm finding a lot of people in that age group that are already interested. I'm like how are you even how do you even know this exists you know, why aren't you drinking Cosmos or like Old E even, you know? And I I don't know how that that changed, but I think it's a part of it is, again, like feeling like they connect to wine culture and the way that wine culture is being presented now as opposed to what it was before. Before it was people in linen drinking Chardonnay on a veranda, okay? And I, as someone who's 22, I'm like, I don't want to do that. That sounds boring, you know? But now you've got wine bars that are dedicated to wine. There's the natural wine movement, which has this sort of this allure. And and I think that people connect with that for sure. And I think that it's just changed. And the same thing with, <clears throat> you look at what cocktails were being made in like the 80s and 90s, people were drinking like canned cocktails and Midori Sours. And now it's like this cool thing, these like good looking guys with the facial hair and the whole thing. So there is, I think that it's just become more romantic and more attractive to a younger audience. And the culture around both things have changed. But um, but it's still it's still shocking to me because I think right before my generation it would have been almost unheard of to come straight out of college and go into the wine industry. There were very few people who did that, and now it's happening like all of the time. So I I don't know. I mean, I think there's probably a lot of things that contributed to that.
0: Where are the black people? <laughs> I'm serious. Where are they? <laughs> where any, are any? Where business? are the
2: non-Caucasian people just in general? I don't know. I I think. Um, it's a weird thing. It's always been like a super, you know, uh, I, I, I mean, I think it's changing to a degree. Look, women just broke into wine, for Christ's sake. You know, I think that it's going to take, I think that it's just been a white male, white dude, rich white dude thing for a while. Um, and I think that's slowly but surely changing. Um, but I, I don't know. It's a good question. How is that? How is that going to change? I don't know.
0: Has there been people you've encountered where you thought, you know, that's a poor guy who's luxuriating in the riches of wine mm-hmm. and is it a generational thing or not
2: i think maybe i mean i you know there's a, you can drink really well for not a lot of money now and i think that's a big thing you know you go out in brooklyn and i frankly like even even three four years ago there were very few places to drink wine in williamsburg brooklyn you know and now that has changed and i actually think that some of the best places to drink wine are in williamsburg brooklyn and that's that that demographic you know and the one, and, it, it, you know, a lot of these people don't have a huge disposable income. Some of them do now because of the socioeconomics of that area have changed. But, yeah, I think I don't think it's as – there isn't that divide, that socioeconomic divide. It's not as wide as it was before. I would be crazy to say that it's not there. But, I mean, I, like, I, I think a lot of people in the industry now grew up – did not – grow up around wine at all. You know, their parents were not the people sipping the ver- Chardonnay on the veranda. And and they ended up encountering wine in one way or another. I think it's an urban phenomenon. You know, I think that is definitely, you know, if you end up in a city, you're, I think you're like 90 times more likely um, to encounter wine, even if you had no history with it before. And, and regardless of your socioeconomic class, I mean, again, people living in an urban area who can afford to go out to eat are, are obviously of a certain, there is a there is like a barrier, you know? And I wonder, I guess, if we we pull it all the way back, it's like, is it ever going to be where somebody who would normally go get a Coors Light is going to go drink wine? I don't think so. I don't, you know, because I, I just, maybe I, I just can't see that happening, you know?
0: Is it largely a conversation in terms of the drinks culture of the mm-hmm. United.
2: Yeah, I think absolutely. I think the new marketing is not marketing at all. And and once you are perceived as someone who is, once you start marketing and people are aware that you're marketing to them, there is like that, like sort of you're, their hands go up and they go, forget it. You know, like I don't want anything to do with it. And that, again, it's, it's goes back to that sort of, it's people who are the, a lot of the younger generation are interested in the people who are sort of, sort of disruptors and there is nothing disruptive about a brand coming to you and saying, look at my new Pinot Grigio. You know, that's, that, that's not appealing to a, a young urban demographic. So I think a lot of brands are realizing that too. And I think there are some people that are, really, that are still marketing and are doing it in a really smart way. But the future of marketing is very interesting as well, especially in the drinks industry. Like How are, how are you going to capture this, this, the sort of influencers of the next generation and get them behind your brand? I think the it's a very the method is very different for sure.
0: I came to wine through restaurants. That's how I got involved in the wine mm-hmm. business. Is there a generation, two generations, three generations for whom restaurants have been important when it comes to wine mm-hmm. or cocktails or spirits? Mm-hmm. And if so, how has the restaurant world affected the drinks culture world?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I think one thing is that the job of sommelier, the sort of um the image of the sommelier in America has changed. And I was having this conversation actually last night about London versus the United States. And in London, sommeliers are still sort of seen as like servers, you know, and there isn't this – here there is this 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 cachet, there is this allure of being a sommelier that I think maybe didn't exist in the same way, you know, even f- maybe five, ten years ago. So I think that's been a huge thing. But I think, you know, with the, the economic recession, you know, a lot of people – and myself included, coming out of college around that time, not seeing a ton of opportunity, taking some time, not feeling pressed to jump into some corporate job, I think um, has bred a, a certain culture, you know, the more creative culture. And a lot of those people that ended up in the wine, in the, in the restaurant industry. Some people ended up in retail like myself. And um, I think that's that's really led to people not only being interested in, in wine and, and cocktails, um, but also being interested in food. And I think that continues to be a major thing. I mean, look, chefs weren't what they are today, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. The same is true for the sommelier. I mean, this is, this is an alternative to a corporate lifestyle where you can still you know, have a real career and, and make a really good amount of money and follow your dream. So I think that realization is a huge part. Of, of what's happening as well.
0: So you are covering both wine and spirits for punch. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference in perception in our culture, one to the other?
2: I think absolutely. I think with with spirits, um, the divide between, I mean, spirits are an agricultural product. And I think the divide is much wider. I think with wine, you see the connection to the land, and I think that's become more of a conversation. Um, I think that's become a bigger part of the conversation about wine um, for a while now. But with spirits, we think of Jose Cuervo or we think of Bacardi, and we think of these mass market brands. And I think a lot of people don't even a lot of people don't even think about the fact that these are this comes from an agricultural product. Tequila, you know, coming from agave. This 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 you know this. This plant that is incredibly difficult to grow has a minimum seven-year lifespan. Something like rum agricole coming from sugarcane. And I think we're starting to see with this idea of terroir and spirits, we're starting to see these connections being more obvious between spirits and, and, and agriculture. And that's like the most interesting part. And I think that's how we're seeing terroir play out in spirits in a really interesting way.
0: Talia Boki, she's creating her own magazine. It's called <laughs> Punch. And you should check it out. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. All alldrinktothatpod.com that's I-L-L drinktothat P-O-D dot com which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating you can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app please that's super important to see every episode and thank you for listening